0: the past dozen years, we've talked to some outstanding folks. From Ray Bradbury to Walter Cronkite to Chuck Yeager, we've had the privilege of conversing with guests who are both accomplished and influential. Speaking with today's guest, Tony Wheeler, is something we rank as a great honor. Surely no guest we've ever had has been so influential to what the host of this program did with his spare time over the past three decades. And we're sure, dear listener, that what you do with your spare time over your next few decades should be influenced by our guest today. Tony Wheeler, fresh from the London Business School, set out in 1972 to take an overland trip from England across Asia. This was a popular sojourn for a small band of bold young people in those days before Talibans and Ayatollahs. Tony and wife Maureen could not afford the package tours making that trek, so they set off as independent travelers. And they made it to Australia by year's end, but just scraped by in doing so. In fact, their tally of cash revenues in Sydney showed they had 27 cents left. These two 20-somethings then took odd jobs to make ends meet while they figured out what to do with their lives. As fate would have it, their lives would turn towards writing about travel. So many people asked about how they managed to make that European journey that they wrote a small book about it, Across Asia on the Cheap. It was self-published but sold enough copies for the wheelers to entertain the notion of making such efforts profitable. Their second book, Southeast Asia on a Shoestring, also resonated with young backpackers who wanted to see the world but had limited funds. To make a long story short, what arose from these early self-published works was the Lonely Planet series of guidebooks. Thanks to hard work, determination, and a spot of luck, an account of a Lark journey morphed into a publishing juggernaut of smart and reliable guides to, well, just about everywhere. Lonely Planet literally revolutionized the world of independent travel. I don't think I can overemphasize to you how many wonderful adventures I've had thanks in no small part to the guidance provided by Lonely Planet books. Travel without a lonely planet is to me like driving a car with no seat belts or windshield wipers. You can get around all right, but neither your comfort nor safety will be what they could be. Tony Wheeler no longer runs the company he founded, but we trust that subsequent owners will not be dumb enough to mess with the winning formula that has produced such wonderful guides. We always encourage travel on this show, so Tony Wheeler's been near the top of our guest wish list for years. Last summer, he gave a wonderful Commonwealth Club talk in San Jose, at which time I was able to say hello and invite him on this program. Mr. Wheeler promptly agreed in principle, and although making that happen in practice ran into a slight snag, he, in fact, joins us today from his home in Melbourne. I'm delighted to finally be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Tony Wheeler. Hello. Tony, I'd like to note for our audience that in 1988, I set out for a year of travel from New Zealand to Mexico. I had eight Lonely Planet Guides with me, but couldn't imagine packing them all, but I did... And that was a smart decision. So I'd like to start today by praising books, noting they need no batteries, and a good guide has good data. So I'm hoping you'll agree with me that uh, paper's not dead yet.
1: Paper's not dead yet, but I must admit, I, I travel with a guidebook on a some sort of digital form just as much, just as often as I travel with paper ones these days.
0: Well... I, I know from your lecture that you find it tough to answer that question about a favorite country, but you noted that picking the weirdest place you've been is easy. So can you tell us a bit about that oddball nation of North Korea?
1: Yeah, I I, I have no trouble at all of listing that as my, my favorite weirdest place or <laughs> my weirdest my weirdest favorite place. It it's an amazing experience to visit it because you you're you're in a place that's sort of surreal. It's not you it, it, you never feel that you're in a real country. You almost feel like you're on a movie set. Um, there, you don't get many visitors, but actually if you can find the key to the door and get in, it is a really interesting experience. But Not an not experience you really believe in most of the time.
0: Yeah, I read accounts of some people that have, have gone there and wondered whether everything that happened wasn't being put on for them.
1: Yeah, that, that's definitely a feeling. You, you, you feel like every building you come to, you should walk around behind it. And, <laughs> if it is
0: like
1: a Hollywood movie set, just
0: propped up in only two dimensions. Well, you you took some heat some time back over the Burma Guide that you published, and I wanted to specifically thank you for it. I don't think I would have gotten to Burma uh, back then if it were not for that book, and though I only spent five days there, it left a great impression on me, so I want to thank you for that uh, volume from its advice on 555 cigarettes and Johnny Walker Red Label to outflank the bureaucracy, to Pagan, which is one of the most spectacular places I've ever seen. Can you talk a bit about Burma and, and what you did to popularize it?
1: Yeah, well, Burma's been a place that's been on my radar for a long time. I, I guess because back in the 70s it was a place a bit like North Korea in some respects. It was difficult to get to and there, there weren't many visitors there. And as a result, those sort of places are always very interesting. But then we did have a long period when people were saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't do a guidebook to Burma because by doing that, We encourage people to go there and that would indirectly or directly support the military government of course that's all changed now now burma is definitely politically politically acceptable and the tourism flow has just taken off in the, the last year or two but it is an amazing country still it is a country that's a little bit different to anywhere else in southeast asia and although the numbers have increased dramatically it's still not a place that gets lots of visitors and there are places things in Burma and Bagan, it was called Bagan when you and I went there, now it's called Bagan, but it it is one of the the most amazing centers, a a place a bit like Angkor Wat in Cambodia, this huge, deserted, holy city, and just an amazing place to visit.
0: You uh, you wrote about Nauru in Dark Lands, a name not familiar to a lot of people. It's generated headlines, I know, in Australia, uh, more so than here. But that little nation provides so many examples of maybe how a place can go wrong, in their case economically, environmentally, and politically. So can you, can you fill us in about poor Nauru?
1: Yeah, well, poor little Nauru, it's a Pacific nation. It's a, it's a member of the United Nations, so it's got, a, it's, got its seat in New York City. Uh, only a population of about 10,000. And at one point, it was totally covered in, in guano, bird droppings. They were, they were there in huge quantities, and they were dug up and sold off superphosphates, fertilizer. And there was a period in the, the 70s when per capita it was the richest country on Earth. It was up there with the Saudi Arabias and Kuwaits, the oil nations, for the, the sheer amount of money that was pouring in through a much smaller population, of course. But it, there was, a, it was very clear this was going to run out, and run out quite soon. And instead of wisely investing it, and there are countries in the world like Norway is the perfect example, which at the moment has huge oil wealth and has invested it very wisely. Well, the Nauruans didn't invest it wisely at all. They just burnt it. They ran through that money like there was no tomorrow. And indeed, there was no tomorrow. The money's all gone, and the country's essentially bankrupt. in Australia, it's a little bit like our Guantanamo Bay. You've got Guantanamo Bay in Cuba where you can hide things away and the, the media can't get there very easily to find out what's going on. Well, Nauru, is if, if you end up as a, political, a refugee trying to sail into Australia on a boat and you're intercepted, you get sent off to Nauru. So it's more or less like an Australian prison camp, not for terrorists but for would-be refugees.
0: Back when George W. Bush got around to calling several countries an axis of evil, I always admired the fact that you elected to then go out and tour them. And while uh, Iraq and North Korea remain problematic, I understand that Iran is a place you can go and have some fun in. Uh, You went, and so I'd ask, what would you say to Americans contemplating going to Iran?
1: I I would say go. I've been there quite a few times over the years. and I I was there back in the, the days, you know, in the early 70s when the Shah was still in power. So. I saw that phase of Iran, and then I was there again when things were in huge turmoil, just before the um, the embassy seizure in Tehran. And I've been again more recently. And you know, I've had an interesting time every time I've been there. And just about anybody you meet who goes to Iran comes away and says, hey, what's up? You know, this is supposed to be this unfriendly terrorist sort of place. And actually, it's a place of amazingly friendly people. Uh, A very, very deep culture. The Iranians are very proud of just how far back their history goes and the depth of their culture and the beauty of some of their cities. It's a, a a quite amazing place to visit because there is a lot to see. And it is a real surprise how outgoing and friendly people are. I think that's a factor. In fact, they don't get many visitors. So when they do get one, they really want to sort of roll the red carpet out for you. You really cannot walk through a park in Tehran without, they love picnics and, you know, sitting around drinking tea on the grass. And you can't walk through a park in Iraq without somebody seeing you as a foreigner and saying, oh, come over, sit down, talk with us. A very outgoing place.
0: Back in the 80s, uh, The Lonely Planet, you warned me against the possibility of being ripped off in Peru and that you probably shouldn't go to Colombia at all. I found you were reporting dead on about Peru, and, and I did finally get to Colombia a few years ago, and happily, you know, both these places are okay now, and I think it's good to note for our listeners that despite news headlines, uh, in a lot of places things can and do get better.
1: Yeah, I, I think South America in general. I, I was in Peru in the 80s, and it just seemed like if you went to Peru... And at some point, you didn't get pickpocketed. You really just hadn't been to Peru. (laughs) It was, you know, people would sit around and discuss, how did it happen to you? Well, I couldn't believe it. I was sitting there, and I I had my hand on the bag, and yet somehow, you know, someone's hand went into the bag and stole my passport or my wallet or something. But to the time when we got pickpocketed in Peru, we, we were traveling with very small children, and all we lost was sort of baby goods. We were trying to replaced with disposable diapers, which wasn't easy. Peru has actually come on a lot since then. Very popular destination. Peruvian cuisine has become one of the, you know, the big cuisines of the world these days. But Colombia for a long time was very much off the radar. And it finally has come back and people are going to Colombia. And I've been there a couple of times in the the last few years, and unfortunately on my last visit about two years ago, I got mugged. And that's really, that was actually the first time I've ever been really... I've been pickpocketed yeah. various times, and I've done foolish things. You know, if you, if you leave something lying around and not keeping an eye on it, and it gets stolen, well, it's your right. own fault. And I must admit that's happened to me once or twice over the years. But the only time I've actually been mugged where someone took it away from me with the threat of violence was in Colombia, but I, I don't think that's a normal thing. That was an un- unusual, unusual outbreak, and it hasn't, uh, hasn't affected the little bit of a love affair I'm having with Colombia these days.
0: We're speaking with the founder of the Lonely Planet series of guidebooks, Tony Wheeler. We should note, of course, conversely not every country does move ahead, and anyone wanting to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo should probably read what you've written about it, <laughs> and then maybe prepare for the worst and maybe in the future the worst yet.
1: The Congo is... Uh, it, it gets very, very few tourists, and I think the, tu- the few tourists who go there are ones who are pretty much out there. I don't think anyone's got to, going to go to the Congo unless they are pretty aware of what they're getting themselves into. But I, I went there just a few years ago. I was writing a book called Darklands, as you mentioned, and I, I went to the Congo because it is a country with all sorts of all sorts of interest. You know, the wildlife. It's one of the the places in the world to see mountain gorillas and i saw the map gorillas there and it's one of the great wildlife experiences of my life it's got one of the most amazing active volcanoes in the world and yet it's not well known you know we, we know the volcanoes in hawaii or the volcanoes in vanuatu or in indonesia but the um, the volcano the volcano naira in um, in the congo nobody knows about it at all so few visitors go there and it's just a fabulous place thing to visit and lots of other things. It's got the, the Congo River. And I, I often think countries that are, are really interesting and unusual in some way seem to inspire writers. And that's certainly true of the Congo. There's great novels, Poisonwood Bible, Bend in the River. Even you know, Conrad was writing about it. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's, had a, it's had a lot of great writing, a lot of great travel writing as well. So a really interesting place to visit, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it to anybody who wasn't very aware of what they were getting themselves
0: into. I'd like to return to the subject of boycotts. You, kind of caught, you were caught in the crossfire over the debate over Burma. Finally, in Cuba, the situation here in the U.S. is changing. That failed embargo for five decades seems to be going away. I went to South Africa in 88 despite the calls to boycott it then. I'm glad I did, but I did note that Nelson Mandela later said that international pressure did Help end apartheid. So it's it's not such a cut and dried um, subject. But what general advice would you give people who are torn about what to do in, about such places?
1: You know, you you've really got to read up and make your own decision. And it's a uh, it's a it's a really interesting one because I think South Africa was a was a case where the the boycotts did in many respects work, and you know we did get rid of apartheid or they got rid of apartheid. And you know you've got it. And Nelson Mandela was you know, what a what a hero the guy was. And I think. You know, you can then you can point at Burma, and I, I don't think that the embargo was a good thing in Burma because the the tourism and the way it worked was very often at individual person-to-person level, and I think the embargo there, you know, it it didn't hurt the right people, it didn't hurt the government, but it did hurt local local people running little guest houses or little restaurants and cafes and things. So I'm not sure that the, the embargo did have a did have that same power in Burma. I often think Tibet's an interesting example because there's no question that the Tibetans are, are oppressed people, and it's a, an amazing place to visit. It's one of, my, one of my favorites, I have to say. you know, Nobody goes to Tibet and doesn't come away without having thought that was an amazing experience. And yet the Dalai Lama says you should go there. You know, he doesn't say stay away, boycott right. this place, even though he can't go there. He does recommend that people go there and... Bear witness to what's going on in the country, in the the country or in the part of China, depending on how you see it.
0: As Lonely Planet was expanding back in the 1980s, Maureen and you relocated to nearby Oakland for a year or so, but uh, you weren't treated too well by U.S. immigration authorities when it came to visas. (laughs) And I think you got a pretty legitimate beef there. Since our Republican Party is trying to make immigration a political football, I wanted to give you a chance to sound off to our politicians.
1: Look, I, I think that, you know, this is a question in all over the world these days. It isn't just an American question or problem. It's anywhere you go, you can point fingers at it and say things. And I think the thing is that very often the immigration rules trip up the, they, they trip up people who, who right that's not rightfully should be there always, but their being there does really good things. And, you know, we're constantly reading about how people who are, are in California is the the perfect place. You know who've got tech expertise that Californian companies would really love to get their hands on, and yet the immigration rules keep them out of the country. And that, that sort of thing happens in all sorts of places around the world, and in a way, it tripped us up a little bit in the, the 80s. My wife Maureen and I, and we had two small kids. My, my son, when he first came to America, was less than a year old, so they were, they were very small kids. And we came to Oakland, and we opened an office, and yeah, the, the office is still there in Oakland. There, there's other lonely planet offices in the United States now as well. But Oakland was the original office. And we opened it up and we employed Americans. And then we had the immigration authorities saying, you shouldn't be here. Get out of the country. <laughs> so it was uh, a... You, an you big bum. Of course, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite welcome back now. It's no problem now for me to visit the States. And I do usually a couple times every year.
0: I want to ask you about the bad traveler. The Chinese, I guess, got some headlines in Thailand recently when a tourist got caught relieving himself in Chiang Mai's moat. I'm hoping you will back me up when I note that despite the reputation of ugly Americans, the Yanks you meet on the road are generally a decent lot, but I think it's fair to say all nationalities have their quirks.
1: They all do have their quirks, and I think, you know, the Chinese are certainly pretty much like, you know, ugly Americans might have got fingers pointed at them in the 50s or 60s. ugly australians anytime there's too much beer around you know the munich beer fest you can always find ugly australians there so i i think every nationality has some quirk that, that, that sets other people's teeth on edge and the chinese are certainly facing some of that at the moment and it's it's kind of interesting to see because they, they, t- tourism has grown so quickly in china that lots of chinese are go- going abroad and you know are doing the wrong thing in lots of places <laughs> you know they're, they're you know, if you want to get to the front of the queue in China, the only way is to put your elbows out and push. And, you know, lots of Chinese go overseas and think, well, I can I do it in China, I can do it overseas as well, and then, you know, get, get ticked off for doing that. But it's remarkable how in China there's, there's, there's lots, of, lots of advice being given out, saying, you know, when you go overseas, you're carrying the flag for China, you should behave yourself, and these are the things that some bad Chinese have been doing, and you shouldn't have been doing, you shouldn't do. So that's a good sign, and I think it's always a good sign when people do try to be good tourists. And I I think most people are. I think most people, when they travel overseas, they're aware that they're in a different country, they're aware that different rules apply, and they do try and fit in. And let's face it, that's a good thing to do.
0: There's a stat that I'd like to lament today with you, and and hope perhaps our conversation can can remedy it in a small way. That is that only 25% of Americans have passports, meaning three out of four people here have no desire to go anywhere else. What what can we say about this?
1: Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> I think part of it, you know, how many more guidebooks and travel advice could you sell in the States if only more people traveled? Part of it, of course, is you, you, unfortunate Americans, you have such short holidays, you know, the rest of the world gets <laughs> four or five weeks and you're stuck with just a couple of weeks. It's really tough. And so they there are other reasons as well why Americans don't have passports as much as many other countries do. If you, if you live in the Netherlands, you only have to go 50 miles and you're overseas no matter where you live in the Netherlands. Whereas in the States, you know, you can be in California and you can go several thousand miles and you're still in the States and you haven't quite got to New York yet. So there's a lot of travel to do in the States before you do need a passport and go overseas. But I think you, I think everyone should see overseas. And I, I think it's, it's not only is it good fun, it's good business. If you're today, we're in an international world, and if you don't know the the world outside your own borders, how are you ever going to deal with them? How are you ever going to sell them things? So I I think it's, uh, it's not just a matter of good tourism, enjoying yourself. It's also what business is all about.
0: I want to ask you about a quote from your fellow travel advocate, Rick Steves. He's called travel itself a political act, which I thought was a very lonely planet sentiment. Although I know it's not your quote, I just want to know if you'd run with that.
1: I certainly would. I, I think Rick Steves, is a, I, I really have a lot of admiration for Rick Steves. He's a good friend. Um, if ever I'm up in up Seattle way, I, I go out with him. And I, and I think he's, he's quite correct that travel is a political act. And he, he said that, you know, I think, with respect to going to Iran and going to, um, going to Cuba. In Fendi, I've been to Cuba in the last 12 months, and it's a place that, you know, I'd definitely go now, because I think in a few years' time, it's going to be a very different place when the, the tourist numbers really take off. But the thing that really surprised me when I was in Cuba this last time, so I've been more than once, was how the food has improved. It's like the, the restaurants have, you know, they're 10 times as good as they used to be. There's some really interesting restaurants in Havana, and I kind of wonder if it's going to be a bit like Peru. Lima in Peru became a big restaurant uh, restaurant center and I wouldn't be surprised if Havana didn't follow the same pathway.
0: We're speaking with the founder of the Lonely Planet series of guidebooks Tony Wheeler. There's so many wonderful little things that are in, in all of your books that you put together. I, I just want to throw a couple of them out there. Um, <laughs> you you put it you put a, a section in your Australian book explaining Aussie slang like drongo and galah to other English speakers, and all the Australians I met found that pretty hilarious.
1: Yeah, we do have lots of words. You know, I, I think. Uh... You know, they they said once that England and America were two countries divided by a common language, <laughs> and I think that's often very true. There are words which get have different uses in in different places, and uh, Australia is Australia is full of them. We're we're very very fond of our um, our, our use of language. In fact, last night I was at a, a talk uh, It was called a gala a gala talking festival, yeah. a debate and the the person leading it was a a very popular journalist here in um, here in Australia and she just they, they we almost had a new prime minister yesterday the um, tony abbott our prime minister who is currently extraordinarily unpopular was almost kicked out by his own party yesterday yeah. and a, a new prime minister brought in um, but it didn't quite happen and um, annabel crab the the journalist said that she she'd come to this gala festival and she'd come from a place where it wasn't galas, it was galas. And galas are an Australian parrot, which have a reputation of being really rather stupid and noisy. <laughs> and we, we talk about a, a bunch of galas or a bunch of stupid galas. So it was kind of a, a funny little play on words to talk about going from galas to a gala.
0: <laughs> I want to ask about getting help for the independent traveler, or maybe I don't know where you stand on travel agents. I note that in Badlands, you described going to Saudi Arabia, and uh, you know, you know, this is a country that taught the Taliban how to treat women, but you found it intriguing. But to get in at all, you have to be invited. So, uh, what's the role of of travel agents in helping people?
1: I I think you know, travel agents they still have a role, and we we need to make use of them when they're when they're good for. I mean, it's a tough life being a travel agent these days because we all go on the internet immediately and. No one would think of booking a flight from San Francisco to Los Angeles or from me from Sydney to Melbourne or from you know, London. To, no, no one flies London to Paris. They take the train. But, you know, those sort of straightforward journeys through a travel agent, you do it on the Internet. So that's a, a, an area of business that travel agents have lost out on. But there's lots of other things where a good travel agent can really be there worth, worth their weight in gold. And although I do... You know, I think I'm probably pretty good at booking travel, and I, I do a lot of it bookings myself, and I just do a lot of things just by turning up, you know, going to the train station and getting on the train. And I've even been to the airport and got on the plane. So you know, I, I don't do, do things that pre-booked, pre-planned way all the time. But a, a good travel agent can sometimes really be worthwhile. They can have good advice and good suggestions and find things you wouldn't find other ways even with all the power of the Internet.
0: You know, Tony, one thing I always treasured about Lonely Planet was the background histories that were provided. They were well done. They pulled no punches in describing the political situations wherever. But uh, your honesty irritated quite a few dictators and scoundrels, uh, although the pieces were good. Um, do we have to fear that guidebooks in the future might wimp out in this department?
1: It, it is a concern, and I, I always did like the fact that we w- we weren't afraid to call things by name and to to stand up when we needed to. And if our books occasionally got banned in some places, well, that was part of the whole question. You know, in the place I, I've been talking about the, the merits of China before, and I, I, I spend a lot of time in China. I, I, I go to China a couple times a year, pretty much like I go to the U.S. a couple times a year. And it, it always intrigues me, but also it's a place that does have its downside. And I think the fact that lots of things the Chinese try to hide away from their own citizens is definitely not a good sign. uh, That's one of the the good things about Chinese traveling overseas, is they they get to find the things that they're not allowed to find when they're in their own country.
0: I want to ask about 20-somethings and 30-somethings of today. I'm not a 30-something anymore like I was when I backpacked uh, back in the in the 80s. Uh, so moving up from cheapest accommodations is sort of part of my natural evolution. And a guy that moves up a notch, Lonely Planet included, well, that, that's okay by me up to a point. But what will the 20-somethings of today, will, will they be able to depend upon books and web sources so they too can continue to travel on the cheap?
1: Look, I, I think there's an awful lot good to be said about travel on the cheap. It's particularly if you're young and most of us don't have so much money when we're young there there are young people who are wealthy from day one but lots of us start off with less money and end up with more money later on down the line and i think that there's very often that that sort of cheap travel that you you have to go through it's a rite of passage very often when you're young it's terrific because it, it brings you closer to the brings you closer to the ground. It brings you closer to local people. It, you, you get experiences that you're never going to get in a five-star hotel. So I think if you, if you do travel on the cheap at some stage in your, your travel existence, it can be a really good thing. And one of the things I, you know, people often ask me, yeah, you started off this business on travel on the cheap. Do you still travel that way? Well, no, of course I don't. You know, I can afford five-star hotels and most of the time I stay in five-star hotels. But lots of places you go to. You can have all the money in the world. And the best hotel in town is five bucks. And if you want to go there, that's where you're going to be staying there. And I'm always rather pleased at the end of the year to look back on my, my travels and think, well, hey, I did so. I, I had a few of those sort of places that year. And generally they were, they were interesting places. So I'm glad I went there. I, if I had to have oil lamps rather than electricity because there was no electricity in that village, well, that was a, that was a good thing.
0: You know, in bad lands and dark lands, and I, I would imagine probably every place else that you're writing, that in general, most places aren't as bad as their reputations may indicate. And, uh, but even so, there's sometimes you should give a place a miss. I would ask you, uh, how, would, how would you reckon that uh, even an adventure traveler should draw the line on visiting a place?
1: I think, you know, if you feel that you're unsafe going there, and certainly in my days when I was running Lonely Planet, we always said to our writers, we're trying to cover everywhere, but if you don't feel it's safe, don't go there. We don't, we don't want to hear, you know, that you're, you didn't come back, you're in jail, or you're dead. And, and it, Africa was always a test on this, that we, we so often, every edition of Africa, there'd be a couple of countries we didn't cover. But very often, out of 50 or 52 countries in Africa, we'd get to 45 or 47 of them. I remember once I was in, I was in Paris, and one of our French guy who, who wrote for us, and wrote in English and in French, he, I was at a party, and he came in, and, Jean-Bernard Carole, and he came over and he said, Tony, Tony, guess where I've just come from? And I said, where's Jean-Bernard? I knew it was going to be somewhere outrageous. He <laughs> said, I've just been to Somalia. And I thought, wow, you know, that, that's, uh, that's really getting out there on the line. Now, we're not, we're not recommending anybody go to Somalia, but if our writer can get in there and write something about it, fantastic. And I'm, I'm always pleased when they do get to these places, and very often there are places that have a bad reputation, but when you get there, you find the places quite easy to travel around, the travel is no problem, and quite safe. I'm not going to say any place in the world is safe, because you can go anywhere in the world and you can you know, meet the drunk driver at the wrong time. But most places are safer than their, their reputations. You know, we're talking as so much about bad places and dark places. Of course, I love the good travel as well. I, I like Italy and France just as much as anybody else.
0: <laughs> we're speaking with the founder of the Lonely Planet series of guidebooks, Tony Wheeler. Well, we presume you have more time on your hands now that you're not caught up running an international company needing updates and dozens of guidebooks. Um, can we expect more travel writing from you, like Dark Lands, and perhaps more quirky books like ones you did on Rice and Rickshaws?
1: Yeah, I've got a, a number of projects I've sort of got under my under my hat at the moment that I'm, I'm thinking of. I, I haven't got another Dark Lands or Bad Lands on the way. Of course, there's lots of dark and bad countries I could go to if I wanted to write another book about those sort of places. But at the moment, that isn't on my front list. Although there are places which, you know, the, the country that I often say I've never been to, and I have always wanted to go to, and it's definitely not a place to go to at the moment is Yemen. And I, I've been to every other country in the region. I've been to Oman, you know, right next to, you know, all the countries that border on Yemen I've been to. I haven't been to Yemen itself, and I would love to go there. And one day, it can, it, it's never been safe all the time I've known it, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's definitely very unsafe at the moment, so it's not, it's not a place I'm planning to go to next week.
0: Well, I'd like to plug your current efforts. You have a website I stumbled on that was quite good. I'd like you to make our, our listeners aware of that and, and, and talk a bit about, uh, about it.
1: Well, I, I've got my own website. Of course, Lonely Planet has a website, www.lonelyplanet.com, which is, is enormously popular for, for would-be travelers, but as we said at the beginning, I'm, I'm not you know, I've moved on from Lonely Planet. We, Maureen and I sold out of the business six, seven years ago now. I've, I've got my own little website, um, TonyWheeler.com.au, AU for Australia, um, which I just put up various things that, that um, hit me each week or a book I've read or somewhere I've been, something I've found interesting. And sometimes I'll put up a dozen things a month and sometimes a week will pass between between putting something up. But I'm, I'm always going somewhere. I've... I've just been to an Australian um, Australian beach resort uh, this last week and been uh, looking at the Australian wildlife, the birds and the kangaroos and doing a bit of swimming and things. And I've, I've got a, a walking trip in New Zealand coming up in a couple of weeks' time with some friends. I've got a trip to um, to Spain coming up in a, a month's time for a a travel, um, travel conference. So I've got no shortage of... Uh, of travel opportunities. I went to Transylvania last year, which was one of my highlights of um, 2014 travel. You know we Transylvania we think Count Dracula and I, I did go to a town where Count Dracula is supposed to have started it well, did start his career not as a vampire but uh, as a not terribly nice but very effective um, ruler and um, Transylvania was a wonderful place. I was really blown away by what a delightful place it was.
0: Well, Before we end this today, I, I note that uh, you and Maureen have a foundation that seeks to put funds where they will do the most good. I'd like you to talk about that and maybe how listeners might be able to contribute to that work.
1: It's strictly our, our own foundation, so okay. we, we don't seek donations for it. It's just our own money in it. And a, a lot of the money that we got from selling Lonely Planet, we funneled back, that back into the foundation. But it, it actually did start as a foundation within Lonely Planet. that when we were running, running Lonely Planet, a percentage of the company's profits each year went into that. And essentially it was projects in the developing world, places that Lonely Planet did guidebooks about, and we thought, well, we should do more than just write about them and attract tourists. We should also put some money where our mouth is. And it's pretty much the same thing now. My daughter is one of the people running it, and as a result she does a lot of travel. She was in Africa a couple times in the last couple of years, and she's off to... Um, Kathmandu and Nepal next week to look at some projects we have there. And it's mainly it's mainly education and health. Those those two things are the key elements of the foundation. But actually, I'm also... Um, I, I spend quite a bit of my time working with a Bay Area organization called Global Heritage Fund, which looks after ar- archaeological projects in the developing world and not only tries to de- defend and protect the archaeology, but also attract visitors to go there. So the money, more money comes into the local community, and I find that a really interesting. I've always liked archaeology, and it's sort of a combination of my interest in archaeology and also my my expertise in tourism.
0: Well, we certainly hope that sometime when you're back stateside, we can have you on again and maybe update, uh, update us on some of your activities.
1: I'd love to do that.
0: And the final thing is not a question from me, it's just more of a statement. I want to thank you and Maureen for your efforts uh, over the years in producing such excellent guidebooks. Uh, My life was made a lot more interesting thanks to me able to follow the trails that Lonely Planet blazed, and I hope I'm not done yet. And in closing, I hope that listeners will be smart enough to pay attention to what you and Maureen are up to and rely upon your advice, because um, it's always worked for me.
1: Thank you very much. It's it's always worked for me as well, remarkably.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Tony Wheeler is the author of Badlands, A Tourist on the Axis of Evil, and its follow-up Darklands. Also, with wife Maureen, Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story.
1: Okay, thank you very much. That was an interesting conversation.
0: I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.